One day, not long, after, not long after this, word came to Joseph, your father is failing rapidly. So Joseph went to visit his father and he took with him, with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Joseph arrived, Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you. So Jacob gathered his strength and he sat up in his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruit, fruitful and I will multiply your descendants. I will make you a multitude of nations and I will give this land of Canaan to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Now I am claiming as my own sons these two boys of yours, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born here in the land of Egypt before I arrived. They will be my sons, just as Reuben and Simeon are, but any children born to you in the future will be your own, and they will inherit land within the territories of their brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. Long ago, as I was returning from Paddan Aram, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. We were still on the way some distance from Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So with great sorrow, I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath. Then Jacob looked over at the two boys. Are these your sons, he asked? Yes, Joseph told him. These are the sons God has given me here in Egypt. And Jacob said, bring them closer to me so I can bless them. Jacob was half blind because of his age and could hardly see. So Joseph brought the boys close to him and Jacob kissed and embraced them. Then Jacob said to Joseph, I never thought I would see your face again. But now God has let me see your children too. Joseph moved the boys who were at their grandfather's knees and he bowed with his face to the ground. Then he positioned the boys in front of Jacob. With his right hand, he directed Ephraim toward Jacob's left hand. And with his left hand, he put Manasseh at Jacob's right hand. But Jacob crossed his arms as he reached out to lay his hands on the boys' heads. He put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, though he was the younger boy, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, though he was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they preserve my name and the names of Abraham and Isaac, and may their descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth. But Joseph was upset when he saw that his father placed his right hand on Ephraim's head. So Joseph lifted it to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. No, my father, he said, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. I know, my son, I know, he replied. Manasseh will also become a great people, but his younger brother will become even greater, and his descendants will become a multitude of nations. So Jacob blessed the boys that day with this blessing. The people of Israel will use your names when they give a blessing. They will say, may God make you as prosper prosperous as Ephraim and Manasseh. In this way, Jacob put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Jacob said to Joseph, Look, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will take you back to Canaan, 
the land of your ancestors. I know that's a bit of a long passage. Thank you, Charlotte. She's over there fanning. <laughs> but the thing is, that is a monumental point in the story of Joseph. Jacob, his father, if you recognize Esau and Jacob, who was the older of the two? Esau. And yet, Jacob was the lineage that God would bless because God had said, the older will serve the younger. That was true a, a generation previous to that. And so, when Joseph scolded his father for crossing his hands to to give the firstborn blessing to the secondborn, Joseph was doing his best to break generational sin. Have you ever thought about the truth that there is such a thing as generational sin? If you grow up in the household of an alcoholic, you are more prone to be statistically, an alcoholic. If you grow up in the home of divorce, you are statistically more likely to get a divorce. If, if you grow up in a home, and guys, you need to hear me with this. Ladies, you need to hear me too. If you grow up in a home of adultery, you are statistically more likely to commit adultery. That is generational sin. And I love the story of Joseph. I grew up a storyteller because I lived in the culture of storytelling. My grandfather was a preacher. Somebody this past week called me, called me Brother Rayburn. And I thought, don't they know that was my grandfather? Catherine, if somebody calls me Brother Rayburn, I look for Papa Rayburn, you know. He's been with the Lord a long time. He's Brother Rayburn. I've always been just Brother Lynn. Or Lynn, if you prefer. Or Pastor, if you prefer. But I grew up, Vince, listening to my grandpa tell stories. He was a circuit-riding preacher. Went to preaching appointments horseback. He owned the first automobile in Itawamba County, Mississippi. And I used to listen to those stories. You know, Cynthia, I wish I'd written those stories down. I can only remember a few of them. Can you identify with that? You heard the old folks telling stories, and you wish you could remember them now. We grew up as storytellers. It's a part of the Southern culture. I discovered, I didn't know that, Charles, until I went to language school in Kenya with a lot of... <clears throat> Yankees. Uh, and they didn't, and, and I said one time to one of them, you know, don't you have any stories? He said, no, I didn't grow up in the South. Oh, I didn't know there was any other way. And I have to admit, Kelly, that as a storyteller, there was always the element of exaggeration and stretching the story to make the story more interesting. 
And, and there was almost a competition, Bregan, of how far can I stretch the truth and they will still believe it. And, and the one who could tell the biggest lie won. I, I remember Leon Jasper talking about those days and there was a fellow, the biggest liar in the county, in Pulaski County, Kentucky, was a fellow by the name of Rassie. And Rassie could outtell anybody. Now, Rassie was poor. He was so poor, he didn't have running water. Now, Shelley had a, a water spigot driven up in the yard, so it looked like he had, you know, all the neighbors thought he had running water. Everybody knew he didn't. He, he didn't have running water. He didn't have electricity. And people were talking. They'd come to work at the shop where he worked talking about Wells Fargo. How many of you, not the bank, the TV program. How many of you are old enough to remember Wells Fargo? Only a few. You can explain it to the young people later. I'm going to use another term you'll have to explain to them. Because Rassie would, Donnie would come to work talking about Wells Fargo because everybody else did. I just, I just love Wells Fargo. Finally, somebody got so tired of it. They said, you can't watch Wells Fargo. You don't even have, you don't have a TV and you don't even have electricity. You're not watching Wells Fargo. Well, he just sort of sold up. At the end of the, of the day, no, I'm sorry, I, I left, if I don't tell you this, what he said was, I have a TV, I've got one that runs on coal oil. <laughs> now, kids, to you that's kerosene, if you even know what kerosene is. It's not gasoline, that's explosive. I got one that runs on coal oil. And they just sort of laugh. Yeah, Rassy. Tell another one, Rassy. At the, at the end of the day, Joey, he said to all of them, says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch Wells Fargo even if it takes two gallons. <laughs> I grew up, Larry, in that culture. And I never realized that I was learning to lie. Until I told some story, and Alice, one of my friends, said, Pinocchio, your nose is growing. <laughs> you have to explain that to the kids? I hope not. And I realized, I grew up that way, but it's not right. Sam, we're stretching the truth. We're lying. And just because you grew up that way doesn't mean that it's right. Joseph in his life, came to the point where he realized the generational sin that was a part of his life, and he said, I need to change. And he broke the pattern of generational sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, as, as I just illustrated, first of all, he had to break the legacy of lies. Abraham, remember Abraham? Abraham went to Egypt, and he told Pharaoh that, he, he asked his wife Sarah, or Robert used to say Sarai, he, he asked his wife, you're a beautiful woman. She's 90 years old, and such a beautiful woman that the Egyptians are going to want her as a wife. Would you please tell people that you are my sister? 
Because if they find out that you're my wife, they might kill me and take you from me. He lied. He lied. Isaac did the same thing. He didn't go to Egypt, but he moved to Gerar. And the people asked him about his wife, Rebekah. He said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought, they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. <laughs> Look and see how old she is at that point, by the way. But he lied. Two generations. And then along comes Jacob. Anybody know what the word Jacob means? Trickster. Trickster. You might as well say liar. And Jacob, it says of him, Jacob went close to his father and Isaac touched him. Do you know the scene? The voice is Jacob, but the hands are Esau. Isaac, his father, said he, he didn't recognize Jacob because Jacob's hands felt hairy just like Esau's. Kids, he had put fur on the backs of his arms, knowing that his father would recognize that the voice was not Esau's. And so he deceived his father by putting skin with hair over his skin. So when he touched him, he would think it was Esau. So Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. But he said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, you bet. You betcha. I am Esau. Do you see the deception? It's not just one generation. It's generation after generation after generation. Now, it may not be lying, stretching the truth, exaggeration, whatever you want to call it, may not be one of the generational sins of your family but if we were honest with ourselves, every one of us have generational sins. I sometimes get to preach to the teenagers because some of them sit close to the front. Good on you. Thank you for that. I enjoy that. But I want to tell you, those of you who are still single, not yet married, you will take more baggage into your marriage than you realize. Not just you, but your husband or your wife. You will both... Oh, come on. I didn't get a single amen from the crowd. You know it's true. You remember that first year of marriage? That, that's when all the baggage that you've brought into the marriage causes clash after clash after clash. And sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it's just different. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just different. But listen to me. If you are in a situation where there is generational sin in your family, you have to do what Joseph did and break the pattern of generational sin. Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry and put each man's money back into his sack. 
then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack. That's Benjamin. He is plotting. He is a trickster. He is following the pattern of generational sin. He thinks that what he's doing is worth it because he's going to save Benjamin from his brothers. So the manager did as Joseph instructed him. But you remember the story from last week? There was that point, the most significant point in the entire story of Joseph. When trust was restored, Judah said, I have made myself responsible for Benjamin. Keep me as your slave and send Benjamin home to his father. And at that moment, I said last week, forgiveness broke through. Man, I hope you've had a breakthrough this week in forgiveness. But the other thing that broke through, Don, was the conviction of generational sin. I'm doing just like my father did. I'm doing just like my grandfather did. I'm doing just what my great-grandfather did. And it's time for it to end. And he said, I am Joseph. Breaking the tradition of generational sin. He told the truth. Listen to me. Look up here. I said in Sunday school, sometimes I say that because there is a difference in hearing and listening. And just for a moment, I want you to listen. Always tell the truth. Now, there's some questions you might not want to answer. When your wife says, does this dress make me look fat? You might want to say, does this shirt look, make me look stupid? <laughs> and Brenda says, you don't have to tell everything you know. You might have to say, well, I'm trying not to lie. Tell the truth. Don't be a deceiver. Tell the truth. Break the legacy of generational sin. The other legacy that Joseph had to deal with was the legacy of negative attitudes. Some people are just so negative. Anybody remember the character that Robert Francis described himself as? Eeyore. Eeyore. Now, I'm different. I've got, to, I've got to tell you that Robert Francis, to me, to this day, is Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> you don't believe it? Look at the scene where he has climbed the shelf to get the cookies off the top shelf, and when he gets caught, look at the expression on his face. That's Robert Francis. But you know why I think that Kung Fu Panda is Robert Francis? It's because Robert was sort of a stumbling, slow kind of individual until he got in the pulpit 
and then he was kung fu. Amen? The legacy of negativity. Robert was very negative. As his friend, somebody who loved him, I chastised him constantly for being Eeyore or, or Glum. Anybody remember Glum from the Smurfs? It'll never work. That's Glum. Negativity. An example of that. Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of a hundred, he thought. And how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? Negativity and disbelief go hand in hand. Remember that. When you're being negative, your faith is not shining through. Isaac, I'm an old man now, Isaac said, and I don't know when I may die. By the way, he lived for more than 20 years after he made that statement. Isaac was always dying. So was Jacob. I, don't, I didn't have enough time to write all the scriptures where Jacob was dying. Then Jacob exclaimed, it must be true. My son Joseph is alive. I must go and see him before I die. Anybody know how long he lived after that? Jacob replied, I have traveled this earth for 130 hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. Yeah, I've lived a long time, but they've all been bad. I'm so glum. I'm going to go eat worms. By the way, there are plenty of Eeyores and plenty of glums in the typical Baptist church. Please don't be one. If you have grown up in a household of negativity, chances are likely that you're negative and may not even realize it. You get what you look for. If you're looking for the negative, Michael, guess what you'll find? The negative. On the other hand, the Bible says if there's anything true, anything of good report, anything pure, think on these things. Quit being negative. Look for what God is doing. Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Now listen, if anybody had a right to be negative, it was Joseph. Until he was 17 years old, Joseph was influenced by the negativity of his father. 17 years. And then he was sold into Egypt by his brothers. He lived as a slave and as a prisoner from age 17 to 35. He could have been bitter. But he learned something during that time. And instead, he chose to break the pattern of negativity and walk by faith in God 
instead. What hard ad heart attitude will your children catch from you? I left something out of my sermon last week, Tyler, and I, I want to throw it in this time. Good to see you back, brother. I was talking about the fun that I've had with knowing languages and people didn't know that I spoke them and the things that were said in front of me. And parents, I really was supposed to say to you during that sermon, be careful what you say. Somebody's listening and you don't know it. Be careful in presuming that there's no one hearing you. Your children are listening and they are watching you. When have you seen your children make one of the motions like you make? When have you seen your children make a facial expression like your facial expression? I was, I was watching one of those YouTube videos, and it was the little girl who was saying, I'm not going to wish my grandpa happy Father's Day because he's not my father. Where do you think she got that? That attitude, that way of speaking. Where do you think she got that? She's just mimicking what she's seen. Your children, we used to have a tradition that somebody would invite the pastor home for lunch. And we, we, you know, it was a good tradition, but that was two generations ago. And, but there came out of that, I'm having the pastor for lunch. But it also came to mean something else, Gail. It meant when you sat down at the table, wherever you were, you ate the pastor down. His sermon, his person, his clothes... And if you have the pastor or the church for lunch, so will your children. Be careful. They are listening. What heart attitude. If you speak harshly, they will too. Dad, I believe in strong male leadership. I really, really do. But if you are an over-controlling father and you exercise harsh control and harsh discipline, so will your sons. Ladies, if you speak disrespectfully to your husband, number one, that's a sin. You hear me? I didn't get any amens, but it's the truth. If you speak disrespectfully to your husband, it's a sin against God. But if you do it, guess what your daughters will do? We need to break the pattern of generational sin. The other legacy that he dealt with was the legacy of troubled marriages. Troubled marriages. I said that if you grew up in a home of adultery, 
you're statistically more likely to commit adultery. If you grew up in the home of divorce, you're more likely than others to get a divorce. You've had that modeled for you. Abraham. Did Abraham have a troubled marriage? Oh my word. Sarah and Hagar cast out the, the bond woman because she's not going to be, he is not going to be an heir with my son. Hagar had to leave after Isaac was born. What about Isaac and Rebekah? They, there were not other wives involved. That was not a polygamous marriage. But they had their own troubles because Esau, Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. By the way, I'm going to talk about that in a moment, about sibling rivalry. Do not choose favorites. Don't do it. It's destructive to your children. It's destructive to your marriage. Never pit your children against your spouse. Oh, listen, if you don't already know it, you will find out. Your children will pit you two against each other, and you better be on the same team. You better support one another. You say, well, I hadn't seen that. They're not teenagers yet, are they? Boy, nobody's amen in today. But it's true. To do so harms both your marriage and your children. Then there's Jacob. Jacob had four wives. That's insanity. That is a recipe. I'm no, I, for disaster. Leah was the first one he wed. Now, that was not his intention. That's where that statement last week came from. In the morning, it was Leah. And she, the Bible says she was unloved. And then there was Rachel, and she was the most favored of the four. And then there was Bilhah and Zilpah. Those were slave wives. That's just a step above, if it's above at all, a concubine. And you need to understand, you will never understand tribalism in the Old Testament unless you grab hold of this. There was a pecking order. Rachel was top of the list, even though she was the second wife. Joseph had one wife all his life, and there is not one word of trouble, no history of trouble in his marriage. Listen to me. I know that I've talked about divorce, but I need to make this clear. Faith Baptist Church has always been a place of refuge for people who would be turned out of other churches because of divorce. And the truth is, one person cannot save a marriage. It takes two. 
And it's not a 50-50 proposition. It's 100% and 100%. So why do you talk so much about divorce? Because I want to prevent it everywhere I can. But I want to straighten something out. We've been told for years that 50% of people are, 50% of marriages end in divorce, and it's a lie. Where that statistic came from is that they counted the number of marriages and counted the number of divorces, and the number was 50%. What that does not take into consideration, and thanks to Shanti Felden for doing the research and having honest-to-goodness statisticians look at the research, and the figure is 75% of married people today are still married to their original spouse. Why do you say that? To give you hope that marriage is not on the rocks. That you don't have to get a divorce. If you've had to get a divorce, I love you as much as I ever did. And I am here to help you. But if I can keep your children and your grandchildren from going through what you did, don't you want me to do that? That's why we're here. To love you, but also to love them. And try to teach them. Don't marry a jerk. Be one of these. Work on your marriage. Even if it's the second or third marriage, work on your marriage. Listen to me, there is no such thing as a marriage that cannot improve. My wife and I have a great marriage. I am deeply in love with her. But there's something she needs to change. things I need to change too. You see, the only hopeless marriage is where you are determined that our marriage cannot get any better. Are you willing to admit that your marriage could improve? More than that, are you willing to work on your marriage? See, I have a tendency anymore to give the invitation in the middle of the sermon. Now, some of you just thought, is he only at the middle? Are you willing to work at your marriage so that you are married to the person to whom you're married now for the rest of your life? Then finally, the legacy of sibling conflict. I was 45 years old before I learned the meaning of the word sibling. We, we never used that term, Charles, way back when. That's, uh, that was, to me, modern usage. But you know what it means. For example, Isaac and Ishmael. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant Hagar making fun 
of her son. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, Get rid of that woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. And there has been conflict between the Jews and the Arabs ever since. Conflict between siblings. Esau and Jacob. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, Self, the days of my mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Sibling conflict. The twelve sons of Israel. Now Joseph, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brother saw that, their, saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. He grew up. Joseph grew up with that. But Jonathan, he came to a point where he said, no more. This is where I began the message. His father put the older or the younger above the elder in the blessing by crossing his hands. He was supposed to put his hand of blessing on the eldest. Instead, he put it on the youngest and crossed his arms. Joseph said, don't do that. Don't do that. He was tired of sibling rivalry. And he wanted it to end then and there. Listen to me. Make every child in your home feel like they are the favorite. Brenda and I read a story somewhere along the way about the woman who was dying, called all of, their, all of her children in one by one, and say, said to them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But the truth is, you are my favorite. And so, Brenda thought, I wonder what our kids think. And so she went to Shelley and said, Who did you grow up thinking was my favorite? And Shelley said, No question about it, I was. And then she went to Tim and said, Growing up, who did you think was my favorite, you or Shelley? And Tim said, Huh. Everybody knows I was. Parents, if I can give you parental advice, make every child in your home feel like they are your favorite. I want to tell you something. Child of God, God loves you, but I'm His favorite. The truth is, God wants every one of you to feel like you are His favorite. He loves you that much. And He deserves your love and your respect. Do you love Him? Do you respect Him?
Do you obey Him? I want you to stand, bow your heads, close your eyes. I know the time is here for me to finish the message, and I am finished except for this invitation. Do you love God? Do you respect Him? Do you love and respect Him enough to do what He says? That's what the invitation is for. What is it God wants you to do? What generational sin do you need to break? What commitment do you need to make right now? Father, I thank you for your word and just how practical and powerful it is. Lord, make it even more powerful by moving by your Spirit in this congregation right now. Convict us of decisions we need to make. And I pray for those who are lost. I pray for those who need to follow you in baptism, for those who need to come and join the church. Lord, I pray that you would so motivate them that they would come to Todd who's going to remain here at the front after the service, or to me in the lobby, and make that commitment before one of the pastors. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.